come on, we're not, we are not going to get relief by turning back to the very same policies that for the last eight years doubled the national debt and threw our economy into a tailspin. Hi, and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. It's Friday, February 6th. Uh, Today on the podcast, we'll be traveling to the country of Irresponsibilistan. I recommend it. (laughs) Excellent. Uh, You're taking us there, right, David? Yeah, they have very nice beaches. Um, It's actually not as far a trip as you might think. Once we get there, we're going to talk about what it means when a country goes deeply into debt. First, our Planet Money indicator is 598,000. That is the number of jobs the economy lost in January, and it was the third consecutive month when we've lost over a half million jobs. Which brings the unemployment rate now to 7.6%, up from 7.2%. And to go along with this number, that we have our own Planet Money indicator, uh, and it has to do with a telephone in San Francisco this week that got six to eight calls every second. It's a phone line at a AM radio station, KGO AM 810 in San Francisco. And they were doing this one-hour sell-yourself segment. So basically, people who had just lost their jobs got a chance to call in and come on the air and, and sell themselves to try and get a job. Michael is calling from Roanoke Park. Hi, my name is Michael Colisey, and uh, uh, like so many others, Monday I went into work. I was working on a project in Dubai, and after lunch got told I was laid off. I work in the construction industry for probably the largest construction company I worked. Uh, in the Bay Area, Kiwit Pacific, and um, uh, they built the Bay Bridge and the Venetia Bridge, and uh, I did estimating for them, uh, superintendent, and um, just pretty much everything. That's what counts. And you've been doing it for how long? Uh, Eight years. Eight years. How do people get in touch with you, Michael? Uh, You can reach me at... Well, wow, you could actually hear him flipping through his resume there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. He sounded really shaken up, too, um, as did the host of the show, Ron Owens. Um, he, he actually was pretty taken aback by the whole thing. It seemed like it took him by surprise a little bit. I have no idea how many calls we wound up taking during the course of the hour. But as I said, when you get six to eight calls per second, kind of indicates how real it is. And for those of us who are working, maybe just listen to this hour and realize no matter what, could be worse, and hopefully things will be better for those people who called in. One of the things, obviously, that would hopefully get people back to work is the stimulus package being debated in Congress. The intent would be to spend something like, could be $900 billion. But of course, that comes with the cost. Which is that that money has to come from somewhere. And so, David, and this is this brings us to Irresponsibilistan, right? You you talked with our friend Simon Johnson from the Peterson Institute about where that money comes from. Yeah, because he and his colleagues, James Quack at the blog Baseline Scenario, they wrote this really great primer on this. We have a version on our website. And they imagined a country called Irresponsibilistan. And Irresponsibilistan, in their scenario, decides it needs to spend money, more money than it actually has. So it does what we're about to do. It borrows it 
by issuing bonds, treasuries. Right. So people in this country, people in other countries will lend the government money by buying a treasury bond and the government pays them back with a little bit of interest. So I started by asking Simon Johnson, is this a good idea for Irresponsibilistan going into debt? Uh, I guess you should think about it um, a little bit like an, an individual who wants to go to school or a company that has a really great uh, technology to invest in. If you think that there's, you have good prospects down the road, so you go to college, you'll get a much higher wage typically uh, than if you don't go to college. Uh, it's worth investing. Uh, it's worth borrowing, actually, uh, the money to so you can go to college and get that great education or so you can develop a technology that you can sell for a lot of money subsequently. And then, of course, you can pay down the debt. So you shouldn't wait until you've earned enough money waiting tables to pay for four years of college necessarily. Right. I that's think, a situation where it makes sense to borrow. I think that's a very good question. That's a good way to, to, to pose the question because that's exactly the calculation that individuals do and that countries do. You You could save it all up year by year. Um, and then go to college. But that'll take a long time, particularly with tuition uh, where it is uh, today. Uh, or you could you could borrow money and hopefully you borrow on, on uh, good terms. Hopefully there are people out there who regard you as a good credit risk and they'll charge a reasonable rate of interest. Perhaps they'll defer the interest for a while until you graduate uh, from college. And that's a good deal both for the person who goes to college uh, and for the people who lend you money. And I would emphasize also for college professors. The big question here, I think, is how much debt is okay? Because we're obviously talking about the United States here, right? And we're, we, uh, the Congressional Budget Office, most recent estimate was that we are going to just in one year incur over $1 trillion of debt, right? So h- how much debt is okay? What do we know about that? Well, it, it's like all the great uh, questions in economics. Uh, the answer is not very much. Uh, or maybe we know a lot, but it's not as helpful as it, as it should be. Basically, we know that if you get over-indebted, that's bad because you can't roll over the debt. You can't get people to lend you uh, new money. And that's an issue, for example, right now in some European countries, uh, for example, uh, that have debt-to-GDP ratio, so the amount of government debt they owe relative to the size of their economy, is large. Uh, And and not to pick on anyone in particular, but in Greece, for example, uh, this ratio, debt-to-GDP, is about 90%. And, and that's a high level. And depending on what happens to their interest rates and to their growth rate, that could be trouble. And that, just to be clear what that means, that means that uh, in one year, the amount of goods and services, the, the amount of stuff they produce, right, that sort of their income, you might think of it, right, they would have to devote 90% of that if they wanted to pay off all the debt they had. Exactly. If you, were, if you wanted to or had to pay it off in, in one year, it would be almost all of your income, which, of course, would be a terrible thing, and no one would ever be able to do that. But it gives you a sense of the claims that are out there on your income. In the United States, right now, our debt-to-GDP ratio is around 40%, 41%, according to the Congressional Budget Office, um, which is less than half the Greek level. And that's a level that most people would regard as medium-high. It's not a low debt level. Um, it's medium. Greece is high. We're medium there are a few countries around the world that have uh, low debt, but not very many. What's the highest ours has been historically? That's a great question. After uh, World War II, uh, we had uh, very high debt. Uh, different estimates put that between 120 140% of GDP. Uh, that was obviously due to wanting to borrow from our own citizens in order to finance uh, the war effort. And that debt was paid down fairly quickly, in particular because there was uh, substantial growth 
after World War II. The highest the debt has been recently was 1996, when it peaked at 67% of GDP, so quite a bit higher than what we have today. Can you sketch out a little bit exactly what the what the danger is of running such a big debt? Uh, I mean, is that people worry that we won't be able to pay it back, and the United States, you know, could end as we know it, or what? You know, what what is the actual fear? The actual fear is exactly that. The fear is that you take on a lot of debt, you think you'll be able to handle it, and all of a sudden the world changes, your prospects go down, uh, your citizens refuse to pay taxes, and you can't pay the debt. Uh, and this was a, a big question, actually, at the, at the founding uh, of the American uh, Republic. How much of the debt that had been um, accumulated in the struggle for independence should be paid off by this new state? And Alexander Hamilton, among others, but very decisively, uh, Hamilton said, we should honor the debt. It's really critical for the creation of a viable state and for building a reputation that we honor all the debt that's out there that was used to pay people who worked in the, in the, uh, who were in the Continental uh, Army, for example. Um, and that's a fundamental principle um, for the United States and for good governments uh, everywhere. And the danger is that you'll take your eye off the ball, you'll overborrow, and you'll get in over your head. And at that point... There'll be no alternative other than to skip some payments. And skipping payments on your national debt is not like skipping a payment or two on your credit card. It, it, it immediately and irrepar- irreparably damages your reputation. And then, for instance, it gets harder and harder to borrow, and you have to pay higher interest rates, and you have more problems right along the way. Before That's the exactly. United States actually ends, you, <laughs> it, it gets very, very bumpy. Uh, yes, the United States is not going to end. But what would happen is the cost to us of new borrowing would go up, and you know, a big chunk of, of, of what we do spend every year uh, of our government budget is interest payments. Um, now, if interest rates right now on government debt are, are extremely low, we can borrow long-term at uh, 2% or a bit more than 2%, um, which is remarkably low by historical standards. Uh, if, we, if there was a significant risk of default, you would be paying a much uh, higher interest rate. And if you look, for example at what's happening in Greece to the Greek government, their interest rates are going up uh, steadily as people begin to worry about whether they might, um, down the road, uh, in the not-too-distant future, skip a payment or two. Okay, here's the big ending, the big reveal, the big twist to the movie. Is Irresponsibilistan really the United States? No, it's not. Not yet, not now, and not with the policies we see. But let me put it like this. I sat down with, with a senior experienced uh, Italian government official earlier this week to review what we're doing in the United States and what will happen in terms of our fiscal position and our debt. And at the end of the conversation, we went through all the numbers for about five minutes. He looked at me and he said, so you're going to end up with the debt to GDP ratio. Remember this critical measure of how much debt we have in the U.S. He said this debt to GDP ratio, when you're done with the stimulus and getting through the recession and bailing out the banks and sorting out housing, this ratio is going to be very close to what it is in Italy today. Italy is between 80 and 90 percent. And I said, yes, that's what it looks like. And, and he, he shook his head sadly and said, well, um, that, that will make things more difficult down the road. Thank you to Simon Johnson. And uh, it's really exciting, actually, about Simon. He's agreed to co-host Planet Money from time to time. Um, we're very excited about that. And so you can look for him in the next couple of weeks sharing the hosting duties here in the booth with me or David or Adam or Laura. And if you go to our blog, npr.org slash money, you can read that primer that Simon and James Quack wrote. We travel now, though, from Irresponsibilistan to Pajamistan. 
<laughs> pajama stain is a Cambodia where actually a lot, <laughs> yes. a lot of pajamas are made. Uh, in fact, the vast majority, I mean, incredibly, the vast majority of Cambodia's economy is just making clothing. Uh, you know, I was there for a while teaching journalism and uh, like T-shirts, you know, when you walk through the markets, the open markets, they're just T-shirts after T-shirt after T-shirt, usually with uh, anchor advertising, anchor beer on it or anchor wat, the ancient temples that everyone goes to see or some uh, a company that does demining, taking mines out of the ground after they're from the they're still there from the Khmer Rouge. So, so it's a T-shirt and pajama-based economy. Has that actually been working for them? Well, I mean, it, it it was great up until right about now, actually. Right, and this story that we're about to hear is is it's a story about the big consequences of small actions. And to set the stage, we want to start by playing you a part of a story that we did on This American Life uh, a while ago. It's by Rachel Louise Snyder, who lives in Cambodia. The garment industry is 90% of Cambodia's exports. So when the Minister of Commerce visits a factory, he's greeted like a movie star. Hundreds of workers, all of them women, stand along the factory driveway in traditional Cambodian silk dresses, in maroon and gold, waving hundreds of Cambodian flags. They offer the minister flowers and fruit. As he walks through each section of the factory, workers stand up from their stations and cheer. Plexiglass cases hang from the ceilings and show the kinds of things they make. Fleece sweatshirts, cotton blankets, flannel pajamas. The minister, Tom Prasit, is particularly happy about the pajamas. There is one thing that we um, feel very proud is that there is one year when Cambodia was ranking number one in terms of uh, pajamas, women's pajamas for... Women's pajamas? Yes. <laughs> that means 20 million American women are wearing Cambodian uh, pajamas. And we are ranking number one for that in the U.S. Sleeping <laughs> soundly and having sweet dreams. <laughs> they hope they would have also thinking of Cambodians who are producing this for them. They're not, of course, and that's Cambodia's entire problem in a nutshell. The clothing business has transformed Cambodia in a way most Americans can't imagine and know absolutely nothing about. In the 1970s, between one and two million Cambodians died, about a third of the population, in the country's civil war. The Khmer Rouge eliminated business of every kind, and even money itself. The middle class was slaughtered. For two decades after that, the country's economy was flattened and chronic drought affected hundreds of thousands of families. But in the mid-90s, outside investors began opening garment factories. And within five years, clothes were the country's biggest export. Two things made this possible. First, an international quota system implemented decades ago kept any one country from being the sole provider of clothes to the American and European markets. That meant more than 50 countries got a shot at the industry. The second thing was that under the Clinton administration, Cambodia was part of an extraordinary experiment. It got special access to U.S. markets in exchange for good conditions for workers and factory monitoring by the International Labor Organization. The Cambodians didn't just make child labor and sweatshops illegal. They adopted some of the most progressive labor laws in the world. Eight-hour workdays, paid overtime, three months maternity leave, 43 days vacation, annual health checkups, and free health clinics on site. The access Cambodia got to U.S. and European markets made the industry explode, growing from nothing to 250 factories in just 10 years. The experiment was a huge success. 
So that story originally aired in 2005. And what happened next is that the special trade status that she mentioned that the U.S. gave to Cambodia went away. And that could have been disastrous for Cambodia, except for these pieces of paper I have in my hand here. Mm -hmm. This is the trade agreement. It's a trade agreement that actually has absolutely nothing to do with Cambodia, at least not directly. Um, can, can I see one of these yeah. pieces of paper? So, so what you are holding in your hand here is a uh, – it's called the China Textile Safeguard Agreement. Yep. Um, and what it does is basically limits the amount of clothing that we in the U.S. will take from China – Right, from China. And it was basically the idea is to protect the U.S. textile industry. So by, by trying to protect the U.S. textile industry and by trying to stick it to China, we've actually... Right, it kept the door open from Cambodia because Cambodia is like, oh, China can't <laughs> sell too much to the United States. That's awesome. We can still sell our pajamas, even if the Chinese pajamas are cheaper. They're right. still going to have to buy from us. So uh, Because we don't have enough domestic... Producers of pajamas, pajamas to, yeah. to, to a, a separate crisis, which we'll have another show on, <laughs> to, to clothe this making the sleeping populace of America. Right, yeah, but okay. the problem was that this this textile safeguard agreement, um, literally a one month ago, it expired. So we called Rachel Louise Snyder, who did that story, to ask her what happened in Cambodia. Well, it's interesting. You know, people were kind of watching the clock and waiting for this implosion, right, in the Cambodian garment industry. But what ended up happening is that the entire world went into recession. And so even China is struggling in in terms of its manufacturing and its exports. And um, Cambodia is, yeah, having a very difficult time, but it's hard to say whether or not it's going to be more affected by the overall global recession or more affected by the fact that China has unfettered access to the U.S. market right now. I think it's going to be very difficult to make a distinction in the, in the next year or two, right. so, you know, which one of those has a bigger effect on Cambodia. All, all we can say for sure is that, that Cambodia is, is headed down a, a, a very bumpy road. So what's it like there now, actually? I assume you've gone out and looked at what, what's that road where all the uh, garment factories are? Well, there's two main areas just outside of Phnom Penh, but uh, Shakang Ri is Shakang the Ri, area yeah. that I've gone to a number of times. You know, it's... Um, it used to be people were spilling out into the streets, buying, at least in the evenings, you know, buying stuff at all those stalls. I mean, it was just happening. Yeah, and it's definitely less so. In the last year alone, 30 factories have closed in Cambodia. That's the largest number of factory closings in the history of the garment industry in Cambodia. What were the kind of fair labor standards that they, that they have? I remember you mentioned that there were breaks for breastfeeding for new mothers. Yeah, the Cambodian labor standards were based on French labor standards, so they're very, very similar. So garment workers got breastfeeding breaks. They have medical clinics. By you know, They're supposed to, by law, have medical clinics in their factories. They got vacations. They got paid holidays. And they, had the right, they have the right to unionize and to strike and to um, form and reform unions. So it's it's a quite a quite a good system. I have to say the with the economic downturn there has been more and more talk of whether or not Cambodia is going to be able to sustain their decent working conditions and in fact there are a lot of stories of of worker intimidation, of regression. I heard a, I heard a story recently of a factory subcontracting out to women in prison and they were paid about $2.50 a month. Um, so there's fear that, you know, in, in the face of such economic woes, 
the first thing to go could possibly be these labor standards that they've worked so hard to keep up over the years. Yeah, I mean, the, the tension in this story is like, you know, Cambodia did something you just feel great about, right? They're like employing people and they're making their lives livable and helping them make their own lives better. And they're, and they're making products that the world is buying, right? And yet, if they're really opened up to, you know, to unfettered competition, they're going to get beat, right? Because everyone's costs are lower in part because of that. So what what is the answer here? Well, you know, that, and you, you, you bring that up and you're absolutely right, and it's really depressing because a country like Bangladesh that is, in fact, in the garment industry notorious for terrible working conditions and, and sweatshops and that kind of thing has, even in, in the last couple of years of, of economic trouble, uh, seen significant growth. So what does that what does that say about us when when a country like Bangladesh that doesn't have the labor standards of Cambodia is allowed to flourish and Cambodia just struggles and struggles and struggles? You know the answer is frankly that they need to diversify their economy. They cannot just rely on garments, but also they need to improve their productivity and they need to uh, uh, diminish some of the the red tape and the corruption that exists in Cambodia. You know, they've got good labor rights, it's true, in the garment industry, but they also, right along with that, paralleling that, is some of the worst corruption in the world. But it's just a terrifying time. I think Cambodia is... um, is really at a critical juncture right now because they need to keep up their good labor standards and there's there's increased evidence that they're not doing it very well. So, um, you know, it's the one thing they have right now that no other country has. The yeah. only thing. <laughs> all right, that was Rachel Louise Snyder. Um, her book is called Fugitive Denim. It's about all this stuff that's happening in Cambodia, right? Um, And we'll link to it on our blog, npr.org slash money. And, you know, just speaking of Rachel's story, we have another big hour-long special that we're putting together that the Planet Money team is putting together um, with This American Life. It's going to be an hour-long special on This American Life, and then parts of it are going to be airing on Planet Money and on NPR. It's about banking. Exciting. (laughs) It's about banking. And specifically, why in the world is the government giving hundreds of billions of dollars to banks. It's like literally you're taking taxpaying dollars from working men and women and giving it to the richest people and corporations in the world. And there actually is a reason, uh, and you'll hear from the people who think it's a good idea. Uh, you might not like it, but you know they don't really like it either. But I promise <laughs> it'll be, we'll find some upbeat note to end on, yeah? Uh, We're still missing that part. So if you have any ideas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll find something, yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's re- it actually is really, really interesting. There's a very tricky tightrope that the that the government has to walk here and we're going to talk all about what what's going on it's it's you know it's unprecedented territory but there's there actually is sort of there's thinking behind what they're doing so all right that's it for today i'm david kestenbaum and i'm alex bloomberg thank you for listening 